Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast. This week's episode is on living in complexity and facilitating healing work under capitalism with Lara May Northrup. Lara uses she, her pronouns. She is an MFT. She's an author, educator, somatic psychotherapist, and podcaster. Her first book, Radical Healership, is out today. It's a spiritually informed anti-capitalist guide for healing practitioners who want to build a values-driven healing practice. It's a really gorgeous book. We talk a lot about it in this episode, and if you're someone who does healing work in any way, paid, not paid, care work, um, spiritual work, I think it is a really powerful read. Um, she's also the host and creator of the podcast Inside Eyes, which is a series about people using entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma, which was my intro to her work. Her work focuses on defining sexual violence through a spiritual and politicized lens, mentoring healing practitioners and creating a meaningful path and supporting the spiritual integrity of our collective humanity. If you're a facilitator, do healing work in any way, the last five to ten minutes especially is must listen. Um, I'll just say that. So definitely listen to the whole episode. Um, and if you hear Sweet Chai, my new little cat baby, meowing in the background, um, you're welcome. <laughs> so in this episode, we talk about Lara's journey writing her new book, emotions and book writing, surrendering and letting things emerge, overshaping our experiences, living in complexity, grappling with money and charging money within capitalism, the degradation of spirituality and healing, the history of taking away people's access to healing and spirituality as an intentional strategy of domination and disempowerment, how psychedelics and entheogens help us heal sexual trauma, trauma as a spiritual wound, right-sizedness, the need to experience so much joy and so much beauty as people in care roles, how you sustain the path as a facilitator of healing work, and more. And exciting, very fun announcement, we are doing a book giveaway on Instagram. So Lara's publisher is donating two copies of Radical Healership, um, and I will link to the post below, or in the, I'm like, what platform are we on? I will link to the Instagram post in the description for this episode, or just go to my Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore. Um, it's open internationally and U.S., um, but no P.O. PO boxes. For whatever reason, their distributor cannot ship to P.O. boxes. Um, and if you are international, you're going to need to give your phone number um, because they require that for international shipments. So all you have to do is go to the post, tag two friends who would want to listen to this podcast episode, and share the post in your stories. Just make sure that you tag me in your story so I know that you are fully entered. Um, and the giveaway is good for a week. I'm like, when is it supposed to end? Let me tell you right now. <laughs> okay, giveaway ends March 1st. Um, so yeah, enter, share it with your friends, um, and get a copy of the book also. It's a really cool book. Other thing is, I'm hosting Breathwork for Care, which is a Zoom class um, that's really just intended to support you in accessing more of yourself and being held and taking care of your feelings, of your body, whatever it is that you need through breathwork in community practice. That's on March 1st, actually, as well. Um, so I'll put the link in the description to that. And that's all I have to share. I hope you enjoy this episode. So I would love to start by hearing about how you came to be a somatic psychotherapist and how you came to write this amazing book. Yeah. Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for having me here. It's exciting to um, be in this conversation and I'm looking forward to it. Um, so the way that I became a somatic psychotherapist is I, I talk about in my book um, that 
I definitely, you know, I had a big realization around that I had wanted to be a therapist, but I actually had a um, repetitive stress injury as a teenager from a job that I had uh, at a, a pretty young age at 16. And um, I was coming home from work in so much pain that I would have to just lay down and I couldn't get back up again for the day, which is just wild for a teenager, but that that was what was happening. Um, and I definitely, now that I've done a lot more healing work, understand that to be more than just the job. I think there was a lot of just holding and anxiety and tension in my body. But that really set me on a path of being a lot more interested in things like yoga, um, how I'm walking. I, t- I tried Feldenkrais. Um, I I got, yeah, I got interested in a bunch of different sort of somatic modalities um, and slowly actually was able to live with a lot less chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went and saw a therapist, actually the therapist that I talk about in that book, um, Elizabeth Bowles was a somatic therapist. Mm-hmm. And so that like, she really got me thinking a lot more about it. And it's kind of odd that I became a somatic therapist because I think I'm kind of one of those people who's, who tends to be overly intellectual and kind of get away from the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way I was just like blessed to actually be exposed to somatic therapy and kind of get my, like, I want to say head on straight, which is a funny thing to say about being kind of disconnected from your body, but <laughs> just kind of got into a place of like, you know, as being able to really think about what's going on clinically with someone or, or, um, in the room is not something I struggle with. What I struggle with is staying embodied. So it makes so much sense to just go for like a somatic psychology degree and really get a lot of training in how to do that because it is such an important part of healing being in the body. And then the process of actually coming to write this book was so random. Um, (laughs) a couple of, a couple of years ago, I was uh, flying to New York to go to a conference um, I was really stressed out prepping. I was going to do a presentation at it. And the, the, I landed and I got this email from a publisher that said, Hey, we were wondering, uh, excuse me, we were wondering if you'd be interested in writing this book. And, you know, people, you probably know this with your podcast, people reach out to you with all kinds of weird things. You know, people will reach out to you and be like, Hey, we want you to, you know, do this thing that, you know, you get on the phone with them and they're like, Yeah, we want you to give us. $500. And then we, you know, some, some scam, like people are scamming you all the time. And so I was like, this has got to be a scam. Like, I don't know, this must be some kind of self-publishing thing where, and then, and you know, in the end I pay them or something, but I wrote back and I was like, Hey, I'm on a work trip, but I'm happy to meet with you next week. Cause it was a publisher uh, where I live. And it wasn't a joke. They actually just were completely randomly reaching out to me and asking me to write the book. <laughs> um, and I had made a um, an online course some time previously in the, in the previous year before that. And in the online course, I, I it's kind of like a version of the book, but the book is so much more. I mean, the, the book is like more of, it's just, I think, a lot deeper. But um, I had made a little video to advertise the online course. And I found out that the person who reached out to me had taken that video and like used it as the pitch video for the book in one of their meetings this is before I had ever met them. <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> I didn't know when I was like sitting there kind of awkwardly recording my little two minute video being like, buy my course that I was actually making a book pitch. <laughs> so that's, that's how it came to be. And, um, and then it was a whole process to kind of, you know, obviously when, when a publisher reaches out to you uh, or anyone reaches out to you to write a book the next thing they do is tell you to write a um like a book proposal where you actually kind of have to give them a portion of the book cuz they want to know that you can actually write before you sign a contract so um so that that just kind of kicked it off and then i basically started writing the book and when the book is releasing february 8th and that is like 2 years and 3 months after that first email i think wow it's so wild how long the process takes i mean i have never written a book like this, but I hear it from other people who have written books that there really is such like a, yeah, a delay in time, which makes sense because you have to write it. And then also like traditional publishing and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I I actually kind of, I would say I mostly wrote it in about a year, Mm -hmm. but which I think is what I hear is pretty short for writing a book. It's not a book that required a ton of research. You know, it's really a lot of my own ideas and thoughts. Um, so, uh, so I think that's reasonable that it took a year, but 
um, the whole process of a book getting put together and mm-hmm. marketed and we, you know, we made an audio book and all these things, that stuff takes an entire year. So I finished writing the book in March um, of 2021, uh, I guess. Yeah, that's this year. And then it will be released in February 2022. So it's okay. an entire year from me sending it to them. Yeah. Wow. I think I'm... Do you feel like talking at all about like the book writing process? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about that. Especially, I know a lot of... Actually, I feel like every time I tell people I wrote a book, other healing practitioners, they're like, I want to write a book. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> let me tell you how, how to do it. I mean, you know, they can obviously do it their own way too, but I have a lot to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear anything you want to share about what the process was like for you. Like how sometimes I feel like finishing a project is the hardest part. Like the beginning energy of it is like so exciting. And then it can turn into sometimes maybe not for you, but for me, sometimes it turns into like a bit of a slog and I have to really try and reconnect with like why I'm doing it in the first place. So I'm curious for you, like, how did you finish it? (laughs) What was the process like for you? (laughs) Yeah. So definitely, I think writing a book is a total marathon. And like, if any anyone who's listening, who's interested in writing a book, you know, just be prepared to have every single emotion that you could possibly have about the book. <laughs> it's such a process. It's so personal. Um, and it's really hard. It's just, it's really, really hard because you're kind of keeping all these ideas all together in your mind. Mm. Um, but what I think the the way that it kind of worked for me and i compare it a lot to being like an athlete so let's say that you wanted to run a marathon you would not start out on day 1 just running the marathon you know you would if you were had never run before you would train and you kind of eventually you hit your stride where you're like i my body knows how to do this i know mm-hmm. how to get out there and sustain my energy and do it and i actually know what it feels like to run that full length of um time so when I first started out, I would have, I would take like a week off to, from my clinical work, um, to, uh, to write. And I would find myself not really getting much done for the first couple of days. You know, it was just so much to kind of get into the process. I would have to do every possible task not related to it beforehand. So like the laundry had to be done, the groceries had to be, you know, but like every the whole, my whole life needed to be kind of perfect before I could start writing. But then eventually as I became more and more skilled at writing, I could write on a lunch break. I I would be like, "Oh, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to do. Okay, like I have 30 minutes. I can just go in and because you start to just get this really deep relationship with the document uh mm-hmm. to where you know, you know what you wrote the chapter before. You don't have to uh, kind of go back to it and reread it to get yourself back and kind of like back in the game. Um, and then the other thing I'll say about writing a book is that it it's such a process of surrendering and mm-hmm. letting it emerge. So you go in and you're like, here's my writing time. You know, <laughs> this is the free time that I have set aside. I've got to get, you know, chapter nine finished today. And then you force yourself to write it. And then chapter nine is like total crap because you just force yourself <laughs> to write this thing. And there's just such a, it's such a difficult or it's, I don't, there's, I'm looking for the word. It's, there's such an art to just letting the book happen mm-hmm. instead of forcing the book to happen and kind of surrendering to your ideas and your impulses and your motivation rather than forcing it. So I there are were so many weeks where I would write a whole bunch of stuff and be like, okay, I'm accomplished. I, you know, I wrote it. And then just reread it and be like, it's really bad because <laughs> I should have been like taking a walk in the woods instead. I wasn't, you know, inspired. Mm, yeah. What you're saying about surrendering and letting it emerge, I'm like, that's not just writing. That's like the lesson I've been learning all year in my own life is just like stop putting all this energy towards controlling and just like seeing what emerges from that. And it's been beautiful and intense also. So thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, surrendering and letting it emerge is, is so much of what life is, right? Like, I feel like we're always sort of walking the line between when do you surrender and when do you kind of shape your, shape your experience. And, and we're, I mean, so much, so many of us, overshape our experience. <laughs> Some of us over surrender, but 
you know, it's, I'm, I would, I would say I personally identify as an overshaper. Um, Me too, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a good process to kind of be like, I'm going to just let it happen. I don't need to kind of control everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we can start talking a little bit about what your book is actually about. And I think with that, I would love to hear like, why this? Like, why did you want to share about this? What feels important about it? Like, what's kind of your intention in sharing the book with the world? Yeah. So the book Radical Healership is a book that somebody described it to me recently as a bait and switch. Like the book, (laughs) you look at the cover of the book and you think, oh, this is a book that's going to like kind of be a practical book that tells me how to build a practice as a healing practitioner. And then you start reading the book and it's like some practical stuff, but it's a lot about the emotional and spiritual work that sort of goes into being able to sustain yourself as a healing practitioner, not just like having a business that's successful, but really like what it means to kind of live this path. Um, you know, <laughs> why did I write the book? I don't know. Cause these publishers asked me to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, obviously I wouldn't have written a book. I didn't feel passionate about. Um, I think that when they asked me to write it, I was like, okay, I, I had enough passion to make this online course, but I was like, if I'm going to make this a book, I I am going to put my all into something that I really, really care about, which is being able to think about healing work through a political lens and really inspiring people to, to have some kind of political grounding in, in their um, thinking about themselves as healing practitioners. And I kind of say this in the intro of the book that, you know, even if you don't think of yourself as political, which obviously at this point in time in the United States, like a lot of people are, you know, kind of how you think about yourself politically is a, is a pretty charged topic. But, you know, if you have dedicated yourself to being a healing practitioner, part of what you've dedicated yourself to is understanding what is harming because Mm -hmm. you're trying to understand what is wounded and then you're understanding what is healing. And I think if you're a person who's dedicated your life to understanding what the wo- like how the wound is caused, you eventually are required to become a political person. Mm. There's just no not being politicized. Um, even though for a lot of people, you know, that that's sort of a, a sensitive thing. And many people kind of don't want to think about themselves as quote political. So um, I really think of healing from a political lens. That's part of the, the passion that goes into the book. Um, and the other thing is that. I just think healing is so important. Mm. Like I say this in the book, I don't think we're going to survive our own coping mechanisms as human beings. Like mm. we're killing literally everything. We're killing the planet that sustains us. And so um, I just want more people to to go on the path if they want to be a healing practitioner. We need it so badly. We need people to be really good at it. Um, and we need people to actually have, you know, Obviously, for anyone who reads the book, they'll know I can't stand capitalism. I'm very <laughs> against the the capitalist system. But you know, that's also the system we live in. And so many healers have a really hard time sustaining themselves. And so this book is basically me being like, yo, we're very important to the continuation of our species and the stewardship of the earth. Um, I really want to support everybody to do that work. And also, like, you got to be able to pay your bills to be able to do this. So, so that's kind of the passion that, that goes into it and the why of it. Yeah. I think that's something that I appreciated in reading it so much is I feel I have way more processing to do around this idea and have been thinking about it for years. And I kind of ebb and flow around like how I'm feeling about money and capitalism and having a business and working within this structure. But I think I'm in a place where I feel more guilty than anything about making money, even though I'm not even making much money within capitalism. And I think, I don't think I'm alone in that, like you're talking about with other healing facilitators. And I think that feels really hard. And a lot of the advice around that is like, doesn't have a lens at all around capitalism and is just like, you know, align with the vibration of money and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's not really like helpful for me when I'm not coming at it from this, like, yeah, lens where making money is separate from like the systems that we exist in. Yeah. I feel very, uh, dedicated to truth and kind of what I talk about, I call like living in the complexity Mm -hmm. and, 
there's so many answers that people give in the world that are about making things flat <laughs> because it's it's easy. It's like, okay, like I don't want to think about how sick and toxic it is to charge money. I don't want to think about what it means to be a healing practitioner. And I work in a system that harms people, which is like the capitalist system, you know, my business, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I really think so much of healing is actually about being able to kind of embrace complexity and just live in this part where it's like, yeah, I do charge money for my services. I do think that's really gross. I also can't survive without doing it. Like, how am I going to, you know, and I, and I talk about in the book that, you know, like building kind of a healthy relationship to money, uh, that's just an ongoing process. That's an ongoing process in a system. That's a process that in a system that is so exploitative, like you're never going to come to a place where you're like, you know what? I feel so awesome about this. You might be like, I feel comfortable with what I've chosen to do. Um, but yeah, like I'm never going to be like, mm, I'm actually pretty down with exploitation now. It's it's pretty sweet. I've overcome my feelings about it. <laughs> okay, thank God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also will say another big thing I talk about in the book that I think very much relates to that kind of feeling of guilt is that um, healing is just so degraded. And uh, for people who read it, you know, I, I kind of go into a bit of a history about the transition from feudalism to capitalism and um, the degradation of feminized labor and looking at colonialism um, and really just thinking a lot about how uh, forced Christianization and the degradation of um, indigenous people's spirituality. And when I say indigenous, truly like people, you know, people who were uh, who, people in the Americas, um, people who were uh, forcibly taken and enslaved in the Americas, but also um, people who were European, indig indigenous to Europe and not yet Christian, um, that the, the degradation of spirituality is the degradation of healing. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're, when we say like, I feel guilty about charging money or I feel insecure about being a healing practitioner, it's not just one, one person, you or me, you know, that's really just embedded in our field. And I think about how many people told me when I was becoming a therapist, like, yeah, I don't really believe in therapy. <laughs> and I'm just like, do doctors ever get told that? Like, yeah, I just don't really believe in doctors. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, maybe I don't, maybe people don't believe in certain things, but like people definitely believe, you know, that like if you break your arm and you go to the doctor, you can have it be set and healed. So kind of rambling here, but basically just so much of our kind of low self-esteem as a whole larger profession and larger field, I think is actually really deeply embedded in the politics of capitalism and like large scale exploitation through all of those um, systems I was just mentioning. Yeah. Do you want to share any more about that? I made a bunch of notes when I was reading your book because I thought that part about this like long lineage of devaluing healership and the connection of capitalism and forced Christianity and colonization was like so interesting. And I had known like some of it, but not ever in like a, the fullest picture that you were sharing. So yeah, do you want to share more about that? Maybe the other thing I would share about it is just, I don't think it's, uh, how do I say this? It, it, it's not a it's not a surprise or it's not a disconnected thing that when armies of uh from you know a state or a tribe or a group of people or whatever you know because we're talking about this is like we're talking about a time in Europe where um there's states are forming like countries are forming there there's sort of mm -hmm. this is like a long period of time where it's going from like sort of little lordships into full um countries and uh the the process of needing to when a group of people is being conquered to kill or transform or change the people who are in spiritual leadership um through forced christianization or whatever kind of forced spirituality that i just really want people to to understand that that's really intentional mm -hmm. it's really intentional that um like, for example, uh, you know, lots of people are sort of fascinated with and talk about the Druids of Europe and um, uh, and the Celtic uh, lineage. And my understanding from a little bit of research that I've done is that 
um, the Romans came and and went to a place where many of the Druids lived and killed them all. Um, and that's like a big reason that, you know, I mean, and, and there are many examples of that in um, the Americas of um, just a lot of the actual lineage of how healing happened in a community ends because the people who did it were murdered. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's like so important for us to understand that there's a very important reason why that's happening. It's because when when you murder the people who can actually help a community heal, they are extremely disempowered. They don't actually have the capacity to heal anymore. And so, and this gets more into my point about how healing is really political because when we can't heal, we're disempowered and then we are easily overpowered or controlled. We don't have as much agency in our lives. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about my podcast as well, but I, I talk about in the pod, this in the podcast too, just that you know, the extreme level of violence that we're experiencing, plus this wild world where we have to work constantly and have no time on our hands, you know, mm-hmm. it makes it really hard to advocate for ourselves. Um, and I just don't, I don't believe that that's not linked to this process of destroying people's agency in their own spirituality and replacing it with Christian, which I, and I say in the book, I'm not anti-Christian. I'm not trying to criticize people who are Christian, but I am really criticizing forced Christianization. Yeah. And in the book, you say spiritual liberation is literally dangerous. Like systems of oppression can't thrive when we are embodied and spiritually well. And that feels so true. And then when I think about like that just roots it back again to how healing is political and its resistance and how powerful and important it is. Yeah. And it's really sad where we're going with it in the U S because I feel like it kind of, it gets really depoliticized in this way. That's like, you know what you can heal and then you can be a really high earner or like you can heal. And what healing is, is being isolated in your house and taking a bubble bath. And I'm like, no, you can heal and you can be in community and you can have a life full of meaning. And you can say like, screw this insane capitalist system. Like let's, you know, let's like thrive and take care of each other and and live in more mutuality. But yeah. So I, I think there's a way that healing does get allowed to be kind of validated culturally uh, in a dom- dominant mm-hmm. perspective but it's so devoid of what I think is actually healing. And it's very devoid of politics. I feel like that's like how meditation has like caught on so much. And it's like CEOs are meditating and they're like creating more focus. They can be more efficient because of meditating. And it's, yeah, it's like meditating to be better at capitalism and be better at producing. And it's like, okay, that's not really my goal. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I was listening to a Dharma talk just the other day and, um, the Buddha said that one of the most sort of terrible forces in the world uh, was poverty. Mm. And, you know, I mean, like, yeah, people like to take kind of take that little piece mindfulness, you know, out of um, Buddhism, but Buddhism is all about ethical conduct and love and caring about each other and Sangha, you know, AKA community. So Buddhism is totally a liberation-based spirituality. And yeah, mm-hmm. then people are meditating with it to yeah Im- Im- improve their productivity. And I-, I don't know, get cool ideas about how to destroy the world. <laughs> yeah, so cool. <laughs> well, it's like that idea where you like take one thing or take things out of context and you just pluck it and use it and consume it. And without the whole context and structure around it, um, it's doing something really violent and really sad, I think, too. Yeah, we are really, really into that. American culture is super, super into taking a little tiny piece of something and taking all the politics away and everything where it cares, you know, that that piece of thing cares about other people or the animals, the mm-hmm. plants or anything. And then just sort of, yeah, using it for our own um, ability to, to continue uh, amassing wealth. And that is actually maybe an, an easy segue into um, the podcast, which is about psychedelics and entheogens. And just that's obviously a huge issue in that space right now. People are so excited mm-hmm. about using psychedelics and entheogens in order to um, y- yeah, build their businesses and whatnot. And I guess I didn't, I didn't say this when you asked the question about writing the book, but um, I, every time I really couldn't surrender 
and was really, really stuck on a chapter, I used a psychedelic or an entheogen to kind of mm. like get back in connection. So I will say for anybody who's a fan of psychedelics and entheogens, this book is fu- fueled by them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I mean, so maybe we should shift into talking about that a little bit more. I think that's I think I originally found your work, like you were teaching something with double blind mag. And I took mushrooms for the first time last year. And I am like a Virgo rising planner, control person. And I was like, let me figure out how to have a great experience and do it. So I don't like destroy myself. But then like, I also want to be destroyed, but you know, so basically I was like looking up the resources and I think that's how I found you. And you have this podcast that's about psychedelics and healing around trauma and sexual trauma specifically. Um, and yeah, do you want to talk about that intersection at all? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, the podcast is about people who are using psychedelics and entheogens to heal sexual trauma and there are some interviews in the podcast that are with professionals. And there's one episode where I just do the whole episode. Uh, it's just me talking for like 40 minutes. Um, but most of I'm like, you know, that's wild that we do that actually is we just make little lectures, and put them on this podcast. But, um, but then the bulk of it is uh, actually really in-depth interviews with people who are survivors of sexual trauma, interviewing them about what they did and and how it was for them and, you know, what happened in terms of their healing um and i really believe that psychedelic work is somatic it's spiritual and it's also quite psychological uh and you know i know it's sort of a cliche to say like body mind spirit but i really do believe that that is a you know those are three realms that really need a lot of healing especially in the case of trauma and um and i think psychedelics can can touch on all of those, which is really powerful. Um, and I made that podcast just because, you know, I'm a clinician. I am a psychotherapist. I work with people who have experienced sexual trauma, um, mm-hmm. among other issues. And um, it's really hard for people to heal. People really, really, really struggle. And um, mm-hmm. somehow a lot of people make big progress with psychedelic medicine. So I wanted to just sort of make a document for people to get interested and, and kind of learn about it. And it's not for everyone, but that for some people, you know, just so they can have more information about what it's like. Yeah. I think that makes me think about how there are so many ways to heal and also about how these plants also have context and they're connected to other cultures and traditions also. And they're not just something to like pluck out and be like, Oh, this thing. So we can be more productive at work or whatever. I guess people can do whatever they want, but yeah. People can do whatever they want, but you know, I think like really deep healing can happen when we actually yeah, live in a more complex and integrated way. And there's so much amazing healing work that can come from having a relationship to whatever medicine you might be using, let's say mushrooms, um, that really honors and considers like, how are these mushrooms grown? Where do they come from? Like the earth grows those. I mean, the earth grows us too, but, um, thank, you, earth. <laughs> but thank you, earth. We love you. We love you. Um, but, but yeah, so, so I think there's a, a lot of beauty in being able to like respect, uh, where the medicine comes from. Um, and this is a big issue in the world of psychedelics uh, is that there are certain entheogens. And for people who don't understand what that word means, it's it's like a, a plant-based psychedelic. It's it's just it's it's kind of like saying psychedelic, but I'm talking specifically about plants and mushrooms. Um, but yeah, so in the case of entheogens, there are a number of them that come from cultures that have been colonized. And they are, um, some of those cultures are, you know, fighting for their freedom and agency and sovereignty. And they are carrying a really long lineage of how to use that entheogen in a way that now many people who are from Europe and um, the US that have the money to kind of go and have these experiences will go and sort of 
it's so complicated, but yeah, basically go and use these entheogens um, uh, with like people who have used them for, you know, centuries in a very Mm -hmm. traditional way. Um, But then there's also a process by which large, so much money is going into psychedelics right now from venture capitalists. Uh, So taking like one piece of that healing and taking it out of this context of people who, for example, might be like traditional healers using ayahuasca or iboga or mushrooms, taking that out of that context and, uh, and basically, yeah, like selling it in a way that's much more um, sort of palatable for American culture um, and not giving any uh, reciprocity uh, via money or credit to the people who they're taking the, um, the medicine from or sort of taking the, the way of practicing it, like the technology around it. Yeah, I clearly am like a newbie in this space, but I didn't realize that like VCs and stuff were getting involved in it. Big time. It's a huge, huge, yeah, it's a huge thing. There is a company that has uh, tried to patent mushrooms. Um, they, I believe what they've done now is they have patented a way of synthesizing psilocybin. So they own that patent. Um, but I believe they also tried to patent things like what types of pillows are in the room when you're, uh, journeying. I know it's <laughs> no, no, other people can't see your face, but I can see it. It's, it's really extreme. And so, and, and do some research if you're listening, like, don't take my word on that. Cause some of that, I, I, you know, I don't have the exact facts to back it up, but yeah, there's a ton of money going into it. I mean, it's, it's basically a field that's about to explode. Mm. So it's yeah. going to become more widely accessible, which is cool. Um, so for some people, you know, it's going to be accessible via their insurance, which is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. but also there's a lot of really toxic stuff going on with it. And, and I just actually did a presentation, um, at horizons conference last week, um, that there's also this huge issue with, um, therapists and psychedelic guides sexually abusing their clients, um, in a psychedelic space, which you know, I, I could talk more about it. I also have a whole podcast episode on that about kind of why that happens. And it's a big yeah. issue in the field. Yeah. I can definitely link to that if people want to listen to it. Um, and I've heard a bit about that as well. And I think it feels too scary to, for me to like really think about, or I don't know, I'm not like planning on going on any like a guided journey, I guess. So I'm like, okay, I don't need to think about that. Cause that feels really terrifying, but that also makes me think about how you um, have shared about how you see sexual trauma as a spiritual wound. And when I heard that, that felt immediately true. And I guess I'm just curious, like what that means to you and how working with entheogens and psychedelics helps with that at like a spiritual level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so I should clarify that I really think all all trauma and violence has a spiritual sort of perspective on it. But with sexual trauma, you know, it's a type of it's a type of violence that really attacks people at such a core level. Like there's this way that our sexuality is so linked with um like our life force, our life mm-hmm. energy. And a lot of times the way I say it is I just say, you know, sexual trauma crushes the spirit and crushes the human spirit. And, you know, that's not a very sort of technical term, but I feel like when I say it, people, you know, they, people feel it in their heart. Like they get what I'm saying. Um, I think a lot of survivors are like, okay, that really clicks for me. Um, And I think that's part of why it's so hard to heal in a context that doesn't have a spiritual sort of holding. Yeah. So for example, with somatic work, um, there's a process of being able to live in your body again, because a lot of times we get really disconnected from our bodies when there's some kind of serious trauma. And especially with sexual trauma, that's a huge issue. And and that also ties into the political stuff of being being in your body is how Mm -hmm. you are empowered. Uh, and your body is like this huge source of information of, of how, just how you're doing. Um, and, and that can definitely happen through somatic work, um, going into psycho, some kind of psychological work. So like therapy or something like that 
you know, there can be a, an understanding that emerges around why something happened, how you felt about it. There can be a lot of processing of feelings and all of these things have a spiritual layer. However, I also think that there is a larger spiritual layer that sometimes gets mm-hmm. missed in those contexts. And with all things of a spiritual nature, there's sort of a point at which words stop explaining uh, very (laughs) adequately. So I just really feel that sexual violence crushes the human spirit and that spiritual experiences are what restore Mm. that spirit. And, and, uh, And I think psychedelics and entheogens heal on a level and in a manner that we don't really understand. You know, I mean, science researchers actually categorize and describe what they call like, quote, Mm -hmm. a mystical experience. And which is cool. It's cool that they're really trying to describe it. I'm not a researcher, so I don't (laughs) feel so, so kind of compelled to have it be so sort of, um, uh, particular. I just know that people are having spiritual experiences and something mm. is changing around their relationship to like, how do I want to put this? Like to like a larger sense of love or consciousness or themselves mm. in the world. Like I'm remembering one, um, one of the episodes that I did, this person has this big, um, LSD experience and he basically is like, you know, I just felt like I belong to the earth and the earth belongs to me. And he, you know, he also was like, I, I don't mean the earth belongs to me, like I can just destroy it. And, you know, but he really meant like, I belong here. And so much about sexual violence and so much of the sort of emotional, spiritual trauma of it is I'm not safe here. I don't really belong here. So this is me just more and more and more words to basically say something that's wordless. <laughs> I hope <laughs> I hope it makes sense to listeners my sort of spiritual perspective on um on yeah, sexual trauma. I mean that makes so much sense to me when I think about when I think about healing and my own experiences a lot of it does feel like it's beyond words and it's like being able to feel things like safety and feeling held and feeling love and feeling care. And it's not like boxes to check. It's just like my body is having this feeling and it feels deeply healing to experience it. It's less of like, I mean, I love journaling and I'm obsessed with all that stuff, but it's less of like that and less of like happening in my mind in like a really logical and linear way. And it's more of like, oh, my body is able to relax into this feeling and where maybe there was a rupture or fragmentation happening before. And it feels like, yeah, it feels like something whole or something changing and shifting inside of me in those moments. Yeah, it makes me think about, I definitely had a realization around spirituality and and sexual violence in my own work as a therapist where you know, working with people who have experienced sexual trauma is really intense. You know, it's like you hear about things that are just so psychically disturbing. You're like, how could anyone do that? Okay, that did happen. Um, And I think when I really thought about myself in a very alone way, like I'm the person in the room, it's just me and I'm just listening to this one other person and we're just sort of doing this Mm -hmm. thing that's just the two of us. It was too much it's too much to hold it. And when I started to embrace spirituality a lot more, I started to enter a place of, I am actually not the person who's Mm -hmm. holding all of this. I'm held by something so, excuse me, so much bigger than myself. And that is how I can Mm -hmm. actually do this work. And you know, I think that that bigger thing, however anyone wants to describe it, if they want to call that the earth or divine love or God or anything, I respect however someone wants to sort of um, conceptualize it. But I just know for myself, like there's a larger force holding me and there's a larger force that mm. connects all of us. Like I'm not alone when I'm sitting in that room. This is actually the work of all of us. That feels really beautiful. And it is making me think about Um, my partner works at a rape crisis center. And one of the things they've been 
really struggling with all years, like vicarious trauma and having a lot of like burnout and adrenal fatigue from like holding all of this in their body. And yeah, hearing you talk about how you're not holding it on your own and how connected you are to all of us and feeling that connection as you're holding space for yeah, these really intense stories and experiences of trauma um, feels really lovely. And I'm going to share this episode with them when it comes out so they can listen to. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. You know, and tying back to the book, um, I think that being a healing practitioner and a lot of times too, I, you know, like I don't know if your partner thinks of themselves as a healing practitioner. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't necessarily think of themselves as like healing practitioners, but everybody who's an activist, everybody who's a nurse, like everybody who's in some kind of care working role, Mm -hmm. um, whether that's for a whole community or for individual clients, um, which in a sense is still for a whole community, uh, we need to experience so much joy and beauty. Mm -hmm. Like we really do. It just, it's, it's not okay to just be facing heartbreak all the time. It's not yeah. good for you. And we are living in a time that is just so, so scary and toxic and gross and violent. And to be in any kind of care role right now, I mean, we are just looking at the, the war, you know, just horrible stuff. Yeah. We need so much care and love in our own lives to be able to do this work. It's just not sustainable otherwise. Appreciate you saying that so much because I think with all of the grossness and the violence and the horror of everything that's happening, it's so easy to feel like it's not enough and I need to be doing something about it 24-7, but that's literally impossible and completely unsustainable and then that's a way to ensure that I will not be able to do anything for a time once I like burn out. And so, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Well, and I, I just think back to like living in the complexity. Mm. Um, and, and also I think a lot about right sizeness, mm. like in this weird way, I think I said, say something about this in my book. Like it's sort of omnipotent to kind of be like the world's, you know, falling apart. And I, if I just worked 24 seven, you know, it's like, <laughs> no, like actually there's going to be pain and suffering in the world that we cannot relieve. And, um, and there's definitely work to be done around that. But, you know, I think maybe one of the pieces of work to be done is like, can I accept that? Can mm-hmm. I feel the pain of that? Can I actually accept, you know, this is how many people I can help in my lifetime. And there will be people who do not get the help they need. And that's not my fault, um, but it is terrible. And I can only do so much. And and so much of what we do is as like our little kind of human being organisms is try to manage your own feelings in all of these different ways. And I feel like so much of us, you know, people who really care about other people, we do this thing where it's like, we just make ourselves feel guilty. Like I should be doing more right now instead of like, I wonder if you just feel, you know, freaking devastated that, that this is what life is for some people and for ourselves, you know, it's not like I'm free of suffering too. Um, and and to really just be able to kind of live in the complexity of it and face it and feel our own limits. Mm-hmm. So that is such a big thing for healing practitioners. We're constantly like, oh, I could just take on another client. I could just give a little bit more emotional support. And it's like, nah, bro, you have limits. Like sometimes you just have to stop and say, I actually can't have any more conversations today. I mean, and that's, I'm a person who, you know, has conversations for a living and, but mm-hmm. whatever our, our healing work is, it's like, we just actually have to find the limit. And accept that we can't give anymore. Yeah, that acceptance piece feels so huge. I need to think about that for like the rest of the night. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it makes me think too about what you talk about in the book about like being a healer will require you to heal. And it's not like you heal, then you help people with healing, but as a process that is happening alongside facilitating and space learning, whatever the healing work that you do is and yeah, how that can be part of that healing. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I feel like when I first started out, I had, I was, I was one of those people. I was like, I don't have any limits. I can just give and give and give and give. (laughs) And then I just like do all these weird compulsive addictive behaviors to deal with the fact that I gave too much and I'm burnt out. And Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a whole process I think of 
like this is how you sustain the path. Like you start having mm-hmm. limits and yeah. And just living in the the part where you actually aren't omnipotent. You actually aren't always all powerful and you can't actually help everyone. And you have to take incredible care of yourself in order to be doing this work. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything that you shared. I want to respect your time and let you go. But before I do, I want to ask you the last question I always ask on this show, um, which is just what does living open mean to you? What comes up for you when you hear that? You know, when I heard the name of your podcast, the first thing I thought about is being a queer person and like mm-hmm. what it means to kind of live open in terms of just like living out my full self. And I guess if I riff off of that, I think so much about what brings me joy in life and when what I hope to support other people in is really living in the fullness of who they are. Mm. And I don't necessarily mean like getting super excited about being kind of egoic and and like <laughs> indulging every kind of every little like ego based uh, want that we have. But yeah, but but also like really letting yourself enjoy your life and be your own be your own person. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that's what that phrase means to me. Mm, I love it. (laughs) Will you tell everyone where they can find you online and where they can get your book? Yeah. So my book is everywhere. I actually am kind of shocked. I saw that it's on sale at Target, um, online, (laughs) but I know it's, I'm just like, wow, "Wow." you know, I never thought I would get to this point in my career. Like (laughs) I have something for sale at Target, Um, but you know, I'd love to um, uh, encourage everybody to actually just buy the book from um, a small bookseller, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but you can get it from any um, bookseller and then where you can find me online. um, You can find me on Instagram. I'm at Laura May Northrup. I barely use my Twitter or Facebook, so I'm I'm not going to give those. Um, And then the other thing is if you really want to be in touch with me, you can sign up for my newsletter, which I shouldn't even call it a newsletter. It's my email list that I send like one email a year. But that's (laughs) if you want to be like in connection and actually hear about stuff and not miss it because you like didn't look at Instagram that day, you can find that on my website, which is lauramaynorthrop.com. So um, Aaron, thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I, I think you're so cool. (laughs) I really enjoyed enjoyed reading through your book and just all the work that you do. Um, I really appreciate it. So thank you for taking the time and coming on. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.